Well, the last time we were in 1 Samuel, we noticed how Samuel fulfilled a type of Christ. That Samuel stepped into an office over Israel, and we focused on how Christ now steps into that same office over the people of God today. We looked at how Samuel became the faithful high priest that the people of God needed, and how Jesus now is our great faithful high priest that we need. And we're going to see something similar today. Samuel is going to get a bit of a, uh, I guess I wouldn't call it a promotion because he's going to retain his old job, but he's going to be getting some new duties from God. He's going to be adding to his vocational resume, if you will, as he today steps into the office now of prophet. Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. So far we have seen those offices typified in Samuel in the priest, and today we see it in the prophet. And in the process, I think we're going to learn something about how important it is that we, as the people of God, have the word of God in our lives. And so we did our reader response in our last song, really focusing on the word of God. Because today we are going to be reminded of our desperate need for the Word of God. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we will read the whole chapter together. If you would follow along with me in verse 1. For these are the very words of God. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, for the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing at Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house and of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him and everything and hid nothing from the Lord. And he said, it is the Lord. 
Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Well, Samuel has, as we discussed, entered into a new role, a sort of additional to his priestly role. The text began by telling us he was ministering in the temple as a priest, but now God is calling him to something alongside that. And when I say God is calling him, I don't use it, that term in the way that we typically use that term, which is some kind of vague, ambiguous spiritual direction. God literally called him. Samuel received a clear and literal voice from God. The text is very clear about this because Samuel is such a young boy and he hasn't encountered the Lord yet. When he hears some audible voice chiming through the temple, he just assumes it's Eli. Uh, he, Samuel, what the text tells us is Eli apparently was going blind. And it was the duty of the priests, if you read in the book of Exodus, to keep a certain lamp lit all throughout the night. For some reason, I guess Eli's blindness made this difficult. So he kind of had his own quarters, and that was one of Samuel's duties. Samuel was sleeping in the temple and keeping the light going. And Samuel is hearing this voice call out to him. And he thinks it's Eli. So he runs back and forth, back and forth. And Eli is thinking, what is this boy doing? And suddenly it dawns on Eli that this must be the word of the Lord. We are in the temple. We're the only ones here. I know I'm not calling him. This must be God. So God speaks to Samuel. God reveals himself to Samuel. Reveals his future plans to Samuel. And then Samuel has the difficult task of sharing this news with Eli. Because a lot of it is bad news for Eli. Samuel is hesitant to share the word of the Lord, but Eli holds him to a very serious curse if he does not. So Samuel shares, and from that moment on, the text ends by identifying Samuel now as a true prophet from the Lord. In other words, this was not just a one-time thing. This is Samuel's new vocation. The word of the Lord is finally speaking to the people of God again. And so the, the, the general gist of this text, if I were to try to summarize it, is the text is trying to reveal to us this desperate need that Israel had and then show us how God met that need. We see this desperate need in this text specifically for the word of God. Israel was living in a revelational famine. Remember, this is a long time ago. They did not, this was, Scripture did not really exist at this time. They had Scripture, but it was not the completed canon that we have now. Very little of it compared to what we have now. These were people who were largely dependent not just on scriptural writings, but on the prophetic word of God. And God is silent. This is a people trying to operate in God's world without God's voice, without God's direction. It's a very difficult, miserable place to be. And so God responds to their needs. He meets their needs and establishes a prophet for them. And the drought is now broken. And the first rain of God's revelation has hit the dry soil of Israel. And so as we look upon Israel's desperate need for the word of the Lord, we are reminded of our condition today where we are in constant and desperate need for the word of God as well. And so I want us to help remind ourselves of how important 
the word of God is and how desperate our need of God is, I want us to see three ways in this text that the word of God is shown to us to remind us of our desperate need for the word of God. We learn three things about God's word in this text that I believe will help us to understand it, to appreciate it, and to be thankful to God for it. And the first point is probably the most obvious, but it's still nonetheless important. Probably the most important of the text. And that is this. We learn from this text that the word of God is precious. The word of God is precious. You could use your own adjective if you want there. You don't have to use my adjective. But something along the lines of saying that God's word is valuable. It's precious. It's important. Why do I say that? Well, the text is clearly... It's, well, maybe I should say it's subtly, but the text is lamenting the absence of God's word. This is not something to celebrate. This is not just, oh, I guess that's the way it is. This is a bad thing. To be without the word of God is a tragedy. That's why, how does the text begin? Verse 1. And the word of, the, the word of Samuel, or forgive me, I'm, that was chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The text begins by telling us there's this precious thing, the word of the Lord, and it's rare. It's not there. The people don't have it. As the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 19, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The psalmist knew how precious the word of God is. And the people of Israel especially knew how precious the word of God is because what's that old saying? You don't know what you got till it's gone? They probably understood even better than we do because we have an embarrassment of riches today. We have Bible, not, we don't even just have a Bible in our own tongue. We have hundreds of Bibles in our own tongue. Most of us have Bibles laying around our house, collecting dust. I have a whole bookshelf of Bibles, just ready to give away to people when they need one. We have an abundance of the Word of God. It's easy for us to neglect how blessed we are. The people of Israel know, knew full well. Oh, you're talking about God's word? I don't know much about it. God's word is rare in my day. God's word, God doesn't speak in my day. That's a terrible place to be. As a matter of fact, I think that as we put the pieces together from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, I think that the text is more subtly, it's not just saying the people without the word of God. I think the text is indicating to us that this was a curse upon the people. Because of the idolatry and the unbelief of their religious leaders, which inevitably is, we, we know from the context of the book of Judges, which preceded this, all unbelief was rampant in Israel. Unbelief, sin, the book of Judges, like every single chapter ends with, and the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. This is a nation just run through with idolatry and unbelief and sin. And so I think that the text is subtly indicating us that God cursed them by not speaking. We have, I mean, that begs the question, why isn't God speaking? And I think the larger context here is he wanted to curse these people. And even if you argue that that's not clear, I would just encourage you, go home and read the Minor Prophets. 
Because consistently, all throughout the Minor Prophets, God threatens His people. If you continue in sin, I will stop speaking. I will not send prophets. God is not above this, in other words. God does not see it as being something against his character to say, listen, if you're going to continue in idolatry, you're going to continue to ignore my word, then I'll just stop giving it. The word of God is precious. We see it because in this text, clearly the heartbeat of this text is these people are famished. The word of God is like water in the desert. Additionally, we know the word of God is precious because God withholds it when he's trying to curse us. He withholds it. So he sees it as a gift. He sees it as a blessing and it's something he will take away in order to punish us. The word of God is absolutely precious. And by the way, this is why I am going to continue and, and it's not, I'm not going to lament. I'm not going to slow down. I am going to continue from this pulpit and in our personal interactions to continuously be so hard on the modern evangelical movement in America. I make no bones about it. I make no apologies for it. Because when we just survey the landscape, it's obviously a broad brush. There are obviously thousands of godly, faithful churches all over this country. I know that. But generally speaking, American evangelicalism is not in good shape. And the most popular churches in America, the most popular preachers in the country are people who don't seem to understand just how precious the Word of God is. And how do I know that? Because they're not giving it to anybody. I listen to their preaching all the time and I promise you, they're not giving the Word of God to anybody. This is why we must continue to be so hard on an evangelical movement that has largely replaced sound Bible teaching with motivational pep rallies. The evangelical movement in America has largely replaced sound Bible teachers with self-help motivational gurus. Men don't even call themselves pastors anymore. They call themselves vision casters. Many pastors nowadays have dropped pastor from their title and refer to themselves as CEO. There are two ways to not have the Word of God. God can withhold it from you, or the people who have it in their possession can withhold it from you. And that's what most of these pastors and churches are doing. They have the Word of God, and they withhold it from people. They say, I'm just going to take this one little verse here, take it out of context, and then springboard to some motivational lecture that I want to give. And in the process, they hold back the Word of God from people. And the reason we're so hard on that is because why? Is this just some just, uh, methodological difference? No. They're cursing people. That's a curse. To hold people from the word of God is a curse. Notice, by the way, it, doesn't Eli tend to understand this? We're, we're going to talk about this more in one of our later points, but let's just look at it here. What does Eli say in verse 17? And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Eli knows that what God said concerns him. And he knows it's probably not good. Yet what? He's desperate for it. I don't care if it's bad news. If God said it, 
give it to me. And if you don't give it to me, then whatever curse you're hiding from me, I hope it comes on you double. It is a serious thing to withhold the Word of God from people. It is a serious thing to hide it, to couch it, to reinterpret it. As a matter of fact, you want to know who taught us this with such great clarity as the Apostle Paul? Keep your marker here in 1 Samuel, but turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. As you turn there, let me explain the context of this verse because it's very important. Paul has been pastoring the church in Ephesus for a few years at this point. And he's about to leave. He's going to Rome. And he knows the Spirit has testified to him, I'm not coming back. So he gets the pastors. He gathers the elders of the church that he had been training that he had been preparing to hand the baton off for eventually, he gathers these men and he gives them his kind of final parting. And he kind of gives them their final commission as he hands the baton over and says, okay, the church is yours now. And the way he primarily gives the commission is by reminding them to follow his example. So a ton of this section that we're looking at is basically Paul saying, remember what I did. I did this and I did this and I did this and I never did this and I wouldn't do this. And he's telling them like, I gave you the example and you need to follow my example. And notice one of the things that Paul is very clear about that he did in Acts chapter 20, looking specifically at verse 26. Therefore... I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What is the epitome of Paul's ministry? What's the primary thing that Paul did? He declared to them the word of God. But he goes out of his way to make sure he tells them this. I didn't just declare to you the word of God. I declare to you the whole word of God. Every bit. Everything God gave me, I gave to you. So what's Paul insinuating here? Paul's saying, you know what I didn't do? I didn't leave out the stuff that I don't want to hear. I didn't leave out the stuff that I knew you didn't want to hear. God gave me a bunch of revelation and I was the arbiter of, you know what, that stuff, I'm not sure how important that part is. I'll just leave that part out. But this stuff over here, this is really important. So let's just, let's just focus on these important, on the essentials. He didn't say things like, wow, God, you know, he gave me so much revelation. Do people really need to know, do, do people really need to go so deep and learn that much theology? I mean, at the end of the day, we're just here to know Jesus and share the gospel. How much theology we do we need to do to do that? So let's just ignore some of those minute details and let's just, let's just focus on the, the important, the essentials. No, obviously I'm being sarcastic. Paul is telling them, you want an example? What's your job as pastors? To declare the word of God in every bit of it. Don't leave anything out. This is why we value so much at our church what we call expositional preaching, where we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. Why? Because it's really not my job to go through and highlight stuff in here that I don't think you really need. It's not my job to survey through 1 Samuel and say, you know what, some of this stuff really isn't that important for the church. I have no business doing that. My job is to say, this is what God gave us, so I'm just going to give it to you. Every word, every jot, every tittle. 
Paul declares the whole counsel of God. Why? Because it's precious. Because it's the most valuable thing on earth. The Word of God is precious. But notice, Paul tells us something else in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Notice the language as he describes proclaiming the precious Word of God, the whole counsel of God. Notice how he says in verse 27, he says, the ESV puts it, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Your translations might say something different. But the purpose, or the point that I'm making though is, Paul seems to be under the impression that the open proclamation of the whole counsel of God is scary. It's intimidating work. Paul is under some kind of mindset that if you want to be, get in the business of proclaiming the word of God, you are getting into the business of a dangerous vocation. There's something about the whole counsel of God and its open proclamation that's going to make men cower. Or at least be tempted to cower. And so Paul, part of his example is not just that he preached the whole counsel of God, but that even though it was an intimidating thing to do, he was bold enough to not shrink away, but to be courageous enough to preach it. So that leads us to our second point as we go back to 1 Samuel. We see this in 1 Samuel 3. The first point is that the word of God is precious, but the second point, we need to understand of this, the word of God is confrontational. The word of God is confrontational. Look at second, or forgive me, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Poor Samuel. He's a young boy. And God calls him to this big, amazing duty. The, the honorable privilege of being a prophet of the Lord. Isn't that so great? Isn't that so honorable and high? Don't we all just wish God would make us prophets of the Lord? If you answered yes to that, I would just politely tell you I'm not sure how much of your Old Testament you're very familiar with. Have you ever read through the prophets? Have you ever read their testimonies? Being a prophet of the Lord was not fun. Being a prophet of the Lord was a dangerous, risky, difficult job. I love a famous Bible verse that many of us know and love and cherish for good reason. Is Isaiah's vision when Isaiah is called to be a prophet, right? He, he's taken up to the third heaven. He sees God. He sees the angels and the cherubim. And God basically asks, you know, Israel's without a prophet. Who shall I send? And the famous, here I am, Lord, send me. Right? Don't we all want that? Send me, Lord. I want to be used by you, Lord. Send me. I volunteer. Send me, God. You know what's the very next thing God tells him? I'm going to send you to a hard-hearted people who are not going to listen to you and they're going to hate everything you have to say. Send me. Being a prophet is difficult. As Paul said, declaring the whole counsel of God is dangerous. Samuel is learning right from the get-go. Notice, it's literally the very first day on the job. The very first prophecy he ever gets is something he doesn't want to say. 
God doesn't even ease them into it. He says, listen, bud, this is the nature of the job. So I'm just going to throw you in and let you learn how to swim. Because you're very rarely going to ever tell somebody something they want to hear. So get used to it, pal. <laughs> the word of God is... Why? Why is this so scary? Well, because we know that inherently the word of God is confrontational. Now, I was tempted to make this point the word of God is offensive. But I decided not to do that because I think the word offensive is a subjective term. I don't, I don't know if I would agree that the word of God is inherently offensive. Things can be objectively offensive, but typically, usually, offense is subjective. Some people are offended by other th some things that people aren't. For example, I could stand in front of this particular group of people right here and I could say, you're all sinners. And just based on what I know about you, I'm not sure that really bothered a lot of you. But if I were to go out to a major city and stand on a street corner and openly declare, you're all sinners, that's going to ruffle some feathers. So you see, the problem there is really not in the word. It's in us and what we choose to do with it. So I would say the Word of God is not an offensive book. It's just a truthful book. And if you're offended by it, then so what? So the Word of God is not offensive. We are offended by it. But I will say what is objectively true about the Word of God is that it's confrontational. The Word of God confronts us with where we're at. And that might be bad news for us, like it is in this case, Eli. Sometimes it's good news for us. Like when the gospel is being offered to us. It's not always bad news, but the point is the Bible, the word of God, is not afraid to meet us where we're at, confront us where we're at, and tell us what God's going to do about it. The Bible holds no punches, in other words. The word of the Lord is confrontational, and because it's confrontational, that means people will often be offended by it. And because people get offended by it, they're not going to like it. And because they're not going to like it, they're not going to like you. So that's why for any Christian to stand on biblical principles, to proclaim biblical principles, and to live out biblical principles, you need to be expected to have pushback. Because the word of the Lord is confrontational. It's precious. But it's confrontational. It doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. It doesn't always tell people what they want to hear. That's why we cannot as Christians shrink from declaring and believing the whole counsel of God. The Word of God is precious. The Word of God is confrontational. But the last thing I think we see, very important point, the Word of God is authoritative. The Word of God is authoritative. Where do I get that from? Look at Eli's example, verses 16 through 18 again. Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So far, the book of 1 Samuel has not given us very many reasons to think highly of Eli. As a matter of fact, even I feel like it's been very redundant. It's like every single chapter we have to be reminded of the wickedness of Eli and his sons. Eli is not really presented as a good man in Scripture, but I, I have to say it's impossible for me to read this text and not say we have at least one thing that we can look at Eli and say, job well done. Can you imagine giving that response 
to what we read. What did, what did God proclaim to Eli? What did Samuel proclaim to Eli? His death and destruction. He already heard it once. We saw that last week. And that's why I said last week, I'm not sure if he knew to believe that. The word of God was so rare, my suspicion, now this is, this is conjecture, but my suspicion is that this prophet came and spoke to Eli and I'm not sure Eli knew, is this man even really a prophet? Like, should I even really believe him? And so once Eli was sure, Samuel is definitely hearing the word of the Lord. Now he's really anxious. Is this man's prophecy going to be confirmed or not? So I think he's standing on the precipice of life and death, judgment and mercy, and he doesn't know. He heard judgment, he heard death, but he doesn't know if it's true, and Samuel is the one who can authoritatively tell him whether it's true or not, and Samuel tells him the bad news. God's done with you. You and your children are going to die. That would be difficult to hear. But how does Eli respond? It's the Lord. Let him do what good seems good to him. Now, who knows? Maybe he had wicked intentions when he said this. I, I, don't, I don't know everything he was trying to communicate. So, so maybe this wasn't as righteous as I thought. But nonetheless, at least just the grammar of the sentence... This needs to be our disposition when we encounter the Bible. When we are reading through the Bible, when we are hearing sermons through the Bible, we need to meet every single verse, every single passage, every single chapter, every single book with, it's the Lord. Let Him do what seems good to Him. What is the example we are learning here? We are learning that... The Bible is authoritative for us. That It's not our job to go through the Bible and pick and choose that which is, you know, that's a little immoral. I don't, I don't think God should have done that. I don't think God should be like that. So I'm just, I'm going to shape God in my own image now. Uh, oh man, yeah, we just read that people really aren't going to want to hear that. I don't, I don't know if that's actually right. We are not the judge of Scripture. We submit to it. It is not our place to judge whether what God said is true or false, to judge whether it's good or bad, to judge whether it's fair or unfair. We merely submit to it because He's God and we're not. If you want more of this, then I would simply call you to read the book of Job, specifically chapters 38 through 41. God spends multiple chapters embarrassing Job. The moment Job begins to question God, the moment Job begins to start giving in to his friend's bad advice and start saying things like, you know what, God has wrecked my life, but I know I'm a righteous man, so, so, so this must be God's problem. This must be his fault. He's wrong. He's misjudged me. This is not fair. The second Job began to do that to God, God steps in and asks him a litany of rhetorical questions, my favorite one being, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What's God's point to Job? I literally created everything out of nothing in the blink of an eye. Doesn't that give you some assurance that maybe, I don't know, I know what I'm doing better than you do? Don't you think maybe your perspective is a little skewed here and not mine? And he asks him all these kinds of questions. And what's the lesson that Job learns when Job finally says, I have spoken out of turn. I have given counsel where I have no wisdom. And Job ultimately responds in Job 42 that the Lord can do whatever he wants. <laughs> you want a thesis of the book of Job? It's this. God can do whatever he wants. Because <laughs> he's the boss. He's the standard of truth, not us. 
He's the standard of ethics and morality, not us. So our job is not to judge the Word of God, but to submit to it. And when we find places in Scripture where we clash with the Bible, let me first and foremost say, to some degree, that's actually kind of okay, because you know what that means? It means that you're letting the Bible speak. I would challenge you, if you can read through the Bible in a year and at no point in time ever be challenged, you're probably not really reading the Bible as it presents itself to you. You're probably filtering it through presuppositions and traditions that allow it to be very comfortable. But if the Bible breaks through our traditions and confronts us like we know it does, then that means there's going to be times where we don't like what we're reading. Just wait. You don't believe me, just wait. We're going to get to some things in 1 Samuel. I promise you, you're not going to like what we read. What's our job in those moments? This is not to be trivial. This is not to say this is light. And this is not this kind of like bash over the head. How dare you question God? Shut up and submit. I understand there's, there's pastoral mercy and tenderness that needs to go into this. But generally speaking, what's our response? It is the Lord. Let him do what he seems best. We are called to submit to the word of God because it is an authority above us. I want to end, I want to conclude this way. We've looked at our three points. The Word of God is precious, confrontational, and authoritative. But as we circle and wrap that all back into our first point, just about our desperate need for the Word of God, I want to commend you as a church briefly. You know, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable for a for a pastor, but again, this gets into the preaching the whole counsel of God, right? It doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable, if it's in the text we preach it, but it's, it's kind of uncomfortable for a pastor to preach on preaching, right? Because it's like, it almost, sometimes it gives the impression that I think I'm doing everything great. But generally speaking, so with that qualification in mind, generally speaking, I am happy with the way the Word of God is handled and presented in this church. It doesn't mean I think I'm the greatest preacher on earth. It doesn't mean I think Jesse is the greatest preacher on earth. It doesn't mean we don't have room for mistakes. We've never said anything wrong. But generally speaking, I think that this church and the teaching from Sunday school to the, to the Wednesday night class to the preaching of the word, we take the Bible seriously. And we try our best to handle it well. But I want to encourage you by reminding you that you are just as much a part of that as whoever it is that stands behind this pulpit on Sundays. I was having this conversation just a couple weeks ago with Drew and Andrew, or forgive me, uh, Drew and, uh, who was it outside with us? Do you remember? Chase. I'm sorry, Chase. I said Drew and Andrew, the same person. Drew and Chase. And they were kind enough to, they spoke highly of me, and, and because most of us are, it's difficult to take compliments sometimes. Uh, you get a little uncomfortable. I was very thankful for what they said, but then I turned it around on them, and I said something very true. And that is, when you talk about a church that has sound preaching, you are not so much complimenting the pastors of that church as you are complimenting all of the church. Here's why I say that. 2 Samuel chapter 3, look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is a metaphor that the Bible is using. God is indicating that I'm going to do something that's going to interest people. 
They want to hear this. They want to know more about this. Here, this metaphor is used in a positive light. Paul, in the pastoral epistles, uses it in a negative light. Where he talks about the reason there are so many false teachers is because there are so many people who have gathered and accumulated them. Why? Because they have itching ears. They've got tingling ears and they've raised up for themselves preachers who will scratch their itching ears. What's the metaphor there in that scenario? He's saying, why are there so many false teachers? Because people want to hear what they want to hear. And if you're going to tell them what they don't want to hear, they're going to go off and they're going to go to a new church or they're going to plant up a new pastor and they're going to find someone who will tell them what they want to hear. So what does that mean? That means that a church that can say, generally speaking, not perfect, but generally speaking, the preaching of the word is sound there, that is just as much a compliment to the people than it is to the pastor. Because if the people don't want sound words, they will find someone who will give them what they want. If they don't want it, if they don't know what to do with it, they don't know how to chew on it, they don't know how to swallow it, they don't know how to appreciate it, they don't know how to understand it, it won't last. Just read any, any biography of some of history's famous preachers. Do you realize Calvin was excommunicated from Geneva? He was kicked out of his own church because they didn't like his preaching. Men like Edwards and Whitfield struggled to find... You want to know why George Whitfield was a, such a famous street preacher? Because he got kicked out of his church. The sound preaching of the Word of God does not mean just you have one faithful Bible expositor who mounts the pulpit and preaches the Word of God well. It means you have a church that's hungry. That they know what they want. And they know when they're not getting it. And they hold their pastors accountable. We don't want cotton candy. Feed us. So please do not hear me in this sermon talking about how important it is to preach the whole counsel of God. I'm not coming here and trying to tell you, look at how bold and courageous I am. I come up here like the Apostle Paul and I mount the pulpit and I preach the word. I preach the whole counsel of God and I don't care what anyone thinks. That's not brave and courageous in this setting. I'm not a prophet in this setting. The vast majority of what I say, you guys agree with. Sometimes we, the word pushes our buttons, but this is not like Isaiah standing in the middle of unbelieving Israel who trying to kill him. I don't pretend to be in that position. Paul's example is not for me, it's for all of us as we turn from our church and go into an unbelieving world and all of us there have to stand on the whole counsel of God, proclaim the whole counsel of God, defend the whole counsel of God. That is something that I think we are all doing, not just me. We have and need to continue to grow in being a church that loves God's word, that cares about God's word, wants to see it rightly handled, the whole counsel of God proclaimed. And when that's done relatively well, that's a compliment not just to the pastor, but to you. And additionally, when that's done well, it is an incredible grace and blessing to the church, just as one commentator said, putting it this way, it is a sign of God's grace when God's word has free course among God's people. That is the teaching of 1 Samuel 3. If contemporary believers have a church where social activities, committee meetings, and nifty programs have not eclipsed the place of the word of God, if the teaching of the Word of God stands at the heart of the church's life, if there is a pulpit ministry where the scriptures are clearly, accurately, and helpfully preached, then they are rich 
in the grace of God. <laughs>